Father, we thank you that you are in control of all things. We are grateful for that. But at the same time, that mystifies us because calamities occur and tragedies occur and it raises questions for us. We think of the devastation that's happened uh, through these tornadoes. We uh, think of the family, the father uh, on staff with family life there in Little Rock and protecting his uh, wife and nine children yesterday and getting them into a, the safest room in the house. And that tornado came through and uh, resulted in his death and the death of, I believe, two of his daughters. I uh, saw that picture this morning of that, of that neighborhood and uh, someone had put up a couple of planks, put up a cross and people were standing around you could see the devastation around them and they were praying and worshiping you. Uh, just tonight I was told of a, of a church in Florida that just was flooded, completely flooded out uh, 24 inches in 24 hours and uh, you've been doing some remarkable work in that ministry and now that building is, is it's, it's gone, it's useless we, we do not always understand at times we are mystified I think of Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong to the Lord God, but the things revealed belong to us and our children forever. There will be a time when we will understand. There will be a time when we will have answers. I think of C.S. Lewis and his statement that, that he believed that when we die and enter into your presence, Lewis said he, he felt that when we would die and go to heaven, the first words out of our mouths would be, of course, of course. Because we see in a mirror now darkly, but then we'll see face to face. Uh, we, we couldn't understand, or we don't have the bandwidth to understand. There are things you've made clear to us about your sovereignty. Yes, you are in charge. Yes, you are in total control. But there are some things you have not told us, and there are some things, quite frankly, that we couldn't even begin to assimilate. Just as two-year-olds can assimilate certain information. They're not there. They're not capable. That's where we are. So in the interim, we trust. And as Job said, when he suffered great, great calamity that broke his heart, he worshiped and he said, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And then right after that, he's covered with boils from head to toe. And here is a righteous man, the most righteous man that there was. 
And now he's afflicted again. And his wife, just in her despair, said, Curse God and die. And then he said to her, Shall we accept prosperity from God and not adversity? You send us both. Ecclesiastes 7, Consider the work of God, who can straighten what he has bent. In the day of prosperity, be glad. In the day of adversity, consider, for God has made the one as well as the other. We pray for the families that have experienced calamity. We pray, Lord, that they would draw near to you. Not understanding all, but believing that you're in control. And that you are the God who brings good out of evil. We commit those grieving families to you. At the same time, we haven't had that here in our community, and we simply say thank you. Um, our homes are standing. Our homes are intact. We don't know about tomorrow or next week or the following month, and we don't need to worry about that, but we just simply want to thank you. doesn't mean we don't have difficult things, because we do. Um, quite frankly, we need difficulties in our life because our hearts tend to wander. We cannot take undiluted prosperity. We can't take it. We're prone to wander. We're prone to leave the God we love. So you dole out to us what is best. You know our hearts, and, and you, you, you love to favor us and... to send mercy and grace and kindness upon us. But at the same time, Lord, you know when we need to be checked. And you can read our hearts. And uh, you are the great physician. So we entrust ourselves to you tonight. We ask that you will teach us. We ask that you will encourage us. We ask that you will give us perspective from your word. We have nowhere else to go to get truth. We ask your spirit to guide us into all truth tonight, the truth that we need for our lives. Help us to listen. Help us to respond. Help us to be quick to obey. And if there's sin that we're harboring in secret, may we be quick to turn from it and give it to you and receive forgiveness. There's no reason to sit here and ask for you to teach us truth if we are refusing to obey the truth we already have. So give us obedient hearts, we pray. In the great name of Jesus, amen. <clears throat> well, we're wrapping up this semester, and we have been talking about leadership. Uh, using uh, the book I did 25 years ago, Point Man, and it's kind of a guide, kind of reached the end of Point Man several weeks ago, and since then I have been, as we finish this semester here, tonight and one more week, I've been kind of uh, bringing up topics that, uh, in a sense, I wish I had to put in Point Man, but I didn't. Uh, tonight, and I've already changed my podium, 
and I'm, I'm learning about this podium. Every podium has a personality. And uh, this one, um, the issue will be balance. We'll see how I do here. There were tornadoes yesterday in Arkansas, just west of Little Rock, devastation. I, I was uh, Dennis Rainey and Family Life Ministries. Uh, Dennis sent out an email, and one of their families on staff, the father and two daughters, died. Uh, the family had nine children, I believe. But other families lived within a block or two, some on the same street, and everybody was fine. Um, saw some of the pictures today. Uh, uh, and, and this ties in with what I want to talk about tonight, which is a leader. If you're a husband, if you're a father, if you're a grandfather, you, you've been given leadership responsibilities in the home. God's called men to lead the family. God's called men to lead the church. Uh, I, I would call this tonight uh, a leader in, in God's providence. Um, as a leader, really we're tested during crisis. And when crisis occurs and when adversity occurs and when um, Certain events occur. Uh, it, it brings to mind uh, a, a story. Harold Macmillan was Prime Minister of England, what, late 50s, early 60s? Probably 60s. And he was speaking at Cambridge or Oxford. I'm doing this off the top of my head. Uh, I didn't plan on telling this story, but he was speaking at one of the Oxford or Cambridge. And, and afterwards, he did a question answer uh, exchange. And one of the students asked him what the greatest challenge of leadership was. And without hesitation, he said in that classic British accent, he said, events, my dear boy, events. Events are the great challenge to a leader. Not the events that we plan. Not the events that are on your calendar. You know, we all got our calendars and all that and you know, we got summer vacation and we got Christmas and, you know, you got, you got the stuff on the calendar, the calendar on the, on the kitchen or the refrigerator, whatever you got. There are events that we plan. But the events that he was talking about, what's the greatest challenge to being a leader? Events. Not the planned events, the unplanned events. The crisis. The, the ones you never see coming. And it's when the events that we never see coming hit that leadership is critical. Uh, leadership that is stable, leadership that is calm, leadership that is thinking clearly, leadership that is not panicked, but leadership that is sound. Um, providence, the providence of God. Other generations have gloried in the doctrine of the providence of God. For some reason, um, I've been in church all of my life, and I have to say that to me, my generation somehow lost the doctrine of providence. And it's one of, it, 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 I, I gotta tell you, it's right at the top, the doctrine of providence. A, a lot of us, I had a pastor one time ask me I, I had been at his church and 
then saw him a few weeks later in a restaurant, and we just chatted for a minute, and he walked off, and he stopped. He took about two steps. And he walked back to me, and he said, tell me again what providence is. I'll never forget that. Um, the more you get the providence of God, the more peace and stability you have in your heart. Providence is the flip side of God's sovereignty. To me, there are two sides of the same coin. Um, so these cataclysmic events that happened yesterday, the tornadoes and devastation and floods in certain states, um, there is a document called the Heidelberg Catechism. Uh, the Heidelberg Catechism is a wonderful document. It was written in 15, what was it? I wrote it down, 63. Uh, it, it is a, uh, and some of you guys were raised in denominations, and you, were, you, you went to catechism class. Uh, catechism is, is a body of teaching that we will give to children in some denominations. The church I was raised in didn't have catechism. Um, oftentimes, what happens is that kids are given a catechism class, and they come through, and then because they, they understand it and they can answer questions, then they go through a process where it is assumed that they are believers in Christ, and they are, uh, sometimes it's called confirmed, and so now they're believers and they're Christians and they're considered being a part of the body of Christ. That's dangerous stuff, I think. Because just because you can parrot something back, it's like any class you take. Just because you cram the information into your head for the final doesn't mean that three weeks later they ask you and you know anything about it or can apply it. But the idea of a catechism is really good. The, uh, back in the 1500s, the, Europe was pretty much under the domination of the Roman Catholic Church and their doctrine, which was a works-based doctrine that the way you get into heaven is to do a certain amount of works, and that works concept is still around. Martin Luther was a Roman Catholic priest. He was tormented in his soul. He could not find peace with God, would, would do, go through all of the different good works, try to remember all of his sins, try to confess them, try to recall everything he'd ever done so that he could ask God to forgive him. He would actually fall asleep in exhaustion, wake up and realize that all those hours and hours of effort uh, on his knees, crawling up uh, steps on his knees, all of that stuff, it, it, he still had no peace with God. And then he started studying the Scriptures and, and saw in Galatians and Ephesians that the just shall live by faith. And, and the Spirit of God hit him with the truth. His eyes were opened, and he understood it was by grace that we are saved. Ephesians 2.8, for by grace you've been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. Watch this. Not as a result of works. It is the free gift of God. And that revolutionized everything. And in the providence of God, which I'll define in a minute, in the providence of God, that, that change in Luther's heart, well, there was a guy named Gutenberg who had just invented this thing called the printing press. And as a result of his studies in the Scripture, and it opened his eyes, and Luther started writing these, this stuff out like crazy, and they would take it down to a printer, and they started printing, and they started passing it out, and it swept Europe like a wildfire. And something happened that shook the foundations of Western civilization. It was called the Reformation. It was an earthquake. And uh, Luther was, uh, he was wanted, and his life was in danger, and uh, he thought he would be drawn and quartered. 
and uh, his friends kidnapped him. His friends kidnapped him, took him to a castle, and he was there by himself, and he translated the, the scriptures into the German language. And once again, the printing presses rolled, and people started reading the Bible for the first time because only the priest could read the Bible. Uh, it, it was revolutionary. Um, I had someone email me recently and attended, you know, evangelical churches and said, we've become interested in, in Roman Catholicism and we're interested in the, uh, we just feel drawn to it. Do you have any comments, any advice? And I sent them just a short article on the Council of Trent that uh, I said the Roman Catholic Church has never repudiated the Council of Trent. The Council of Trent responded to the doctrine of justification by faith, by grace alone. And they repudiated it. And, and they still repudiate it. And I, I never heard back from them. Uh, but it made, you know, this, this, this new church, this experience made them feel better. Well, you can't live off how you feel. You have to live off what is true, you see? People get into different types of religious experience. Uh, there are all kinds of religious experience. What, 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 what matters is what is true, you see? And Luther discovered what was true. Uh, he went to Heidelberg to preach in 1517, and it, you know, not much happened, quite frankly. There wasn't much of a response. But by 1563, some pastors had written um, this catechism, which was a question and answer approach to teaching young people the truth of Scripture. The first question of the Heidelberg Catechism, and you can look this up online, here's the first question. What is your only comfort in life and death? I thought about this when I was reading about the tornadoes and the families that lost family members. And I would say it to you, and I would say it to myself, what is your only comfort in life and in death? Here's the answer. And, and I'm going to read the answer, and then I'm going to give you the scriptural references, because every line that I'm going to read to you is footnoted with scripture. Okay? So they're basically summarizing the scriptural teaching. So what is your only comfort in life and death? So if, if there is an automobile accident on the way home, and you're alive, and your, your wife is taken. My question is, what is your only comfort in life and death? Listen to this. That I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, so far, that's 1 Corinthians 6, verse 19. That's Romans 14, 7 through 9. And that's 1 Corinthians 3, 23 and Titus 2, 14. Right there. Okay? He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood. That's 1 Peter 1.18, 1 John 1.7, and 1 John 2.2, among many others. He has set me free from the power of the devil. That's John 8.34, it's Hebrews 2.14, it's 1 John 3.8. He also preserves me. That's a key word in providence. He preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. That's John 6, 39, John 10, 27, 
2 Thessalonians 3.3, 3, 1 Peter 1.5. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. That's your comfort. That's the only comfort in life and in death. You jump down to question 27, and it says this. What do you understand by the providence of God? Listen to this. God's providence is his almighty and ever-present power, whereby, as with his hand, he still upholds heaven and earth and all creatures, and so governs them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, food and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, Indeed, all things come to us not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. A lot of Christians don't believe that. A lot of evangelical Christians who say they believe the Bible do not believe that. They'd have a major league problem with that. But may I give you the verses? Jeremiah 23, 23. In fact, let's look up some verses. This is called a Bible study. This isn't a catechism study. It's a Bible study. But that catechism is full of Scripture. So let's look up Jeremiah 23. 23. And some of you guys are turning the pages, and some of you are scrolling your phones and iPads and all that stuff. Um, Jeremiah 23, 23. Am I a God who is near, declares the Lord? And not a God far off? Can a man hide himself in hiding places? So I do not see him, declares the Lord. Do I not fill the heavens and the earth, declares the Lord? I mean, that's quite a claim. Uh, look at Acts 17, 24. Paul is speaking to the, uh, the Greeks who loved to debate and had all their idols on Mars Hill that were made to the unknown, uh, that, that all the idols to the different gods they worshipped. And in Acts 17, verse 24, I'll pick up 22. So Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. I'm going to explain this unknown God to you. The, Lord, the God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, he does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. That's preservation. He not only creates life, he preserves life. He sustains life. He's the creator, and he keeps it going. Now, here's the interesting thing about God. He's never been created. He is self-existent. He has always been. You want to kind of miss with your mind? Noodle on that for a while. We, we, I mean, you talk about a lack of bandwidth. We don't have the bandwidth for that one. He has always <clears throat> been. Always. 
He's always been. He created us and he sustains us. In fact, every person on the face of the earth, face of the earth even those who uh, continually um, deny him and continually curse him, they curse him by breath which he gives to them. Hebrews 1 3. We'll pick it up in 1 1. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in, through his son. Let me, let me back up. In these last days has spoken to us in his son, whom he appointed heir of all things. Watch this. Through whom also he made the world. Uh, Jesus created the world. He's the creator. Father, Son, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Okay? So speaking of Jesus, he appointed him heir of all things, through whom also he made the world, and he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen what? You've seen the Father. And watch this. And he upholds all things by the word of his power. The law of gravity works because Jesus makes it work. Okay? Now, I'm not going to read all of these because I want to go on to the next question. Uh, but I'll, I will give you this. Jeremiah 5.24 Acts 14 verses 15 through 17. John chapter 9, verse 3. Proverbs 22, 2. Um, then I would give you Proverbs 16, 33. And then I would give you Matthew 10, 29. And you say, those cover what? Let me read it again. God's providence is his almighty and ever-present power, whereby as with his hand he still upholds heaven and earth and all creatures, and so governs them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, food and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty. Indeed, all things come to us not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. Next question in the Heidelberg Catechism which they would teach the kids. In fact, when you read about what was happening in Heidelberg, and they, were, they wanted these, these children to understand the truth of the Scriptures. Um, and so they started setting up schools for reading, writing, and catechism. They'd teach them the truth about God. We used to do that in this country a long time ago. I read that somewhere. Um, next question, question 28. What does it benefit us to know that God has created all things and still upholds them by his providence? Here's the answer. So that we can be patient in adversity. Hmm. If I'm adversity, where did the adversity come from ultimately? From his fatherly hand. Job was afflicted. You say, well the, well, well, the enemy did that. Yes, the enemy did that. But what did the enemy have to do before he could afflict Job? He had to get the father's permission. Okay. We can be patient in adversity, 
thankful in prosperity. And with a view to the future, we can have a firm confidence in our faithful God and Father that no creature shall separate us from his love. For all creatures are so completely in his hand that without his will, they cannot so much as move. Move. That's Acts 17, 24. We already looked it up. In him we live and move and breathe. <laughs> you can't move without him. You can't take a breath without him. And sometimes he demonstrates this. In the book of Acts, Herod was making some kind of proclamation, and the people said, oh, the voice of a god instead of a king. And he didn't give glory to God. And judgment came on him immediately. And he died of his own stench and putrefaction. It's the grace of God that that doesn't happen to everybody. You see? Uh, th uh, th this, 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 is, this is the power of God. He creates life. He sustains life. And his providence, his providence is his, is his provision, not just to believers, but to unbelievers. The rain falls on the just and the unjust. God is good to all. But he has a special grace he has special providence for his people. Um, here's a book by John Flavel. This book was written in 1678. It's called The Mystery of Providence. I came across this book about 14 years ago. I've worn out, I think, three copies. This is my latest. Um, it's absolutely brilliant. It, this is so full of nuggets. It's called the mystery of providence. It's based on one verse out of the Bible on providence. One verse. Turn with me, if you would, to Psalm 57, verse 2. This guy didn't do Facebook. This guy didn't surf the web. This guy um, was a pastor, and he took his responsibility seriously, and he studied the Word of God. Um, re really, w uh, when I came across this, I, I, uh, there's a lot of other scripture in it, but the whole premise of the entire book is based on Psalm 57, 2. Psalm 57, 2, David, uh, if you notice the inscription... It says, for the choir director set to Al-Tash-Heth, um, which literally means do not destroy. Um, when you read the psalm, David is in a situation where from his vantage point, he is on the verge of being destroyed. His life is on the verge of uh, being extinguished. Um, it goes on and says, a mictum of David, which is a, a, a poem, an epigrammatic poem, epigrammatic poem, or an atonement psalm, it would be the term, oh, watch this, when he fled from Saul in the cave. 
This is what is known as a cave psalm. Another cave psalm would be Psalm 142. Uh, you say, what's this cave thing? Um, if you recall, when David showed up and Goliath was on the scene, David, as you know, took on Goliath. No one else in Israel would take on Goliath. And he took on Goliath and he killed him. He said, God delivered me from the bear and the lion. I'll take this giant on. Nobody else would touch the giant, Goliath. And when he slew Goliath, there was a new number one song in Israel. There was a new, uh, new number one on iTunes, uh, or whatever they had in Israel. And the song went like this. Saul has slain his thousands, David his tens of thousands. David's life changed right there. Because the man who was on the throne was Saul. Saul was the biggest man in Israel. He was the largest man. Goliath was the biggest of the Philistines. Saul was the biggest of the Israelites. Who should have been going to battle with Goliath? Saul. He wasn't. He didn't have a heart for God. He, he had a mouth for God, but not a heart for God. He could, he could say the right things, but it wasn't in his heart. But here comes David. Suddenly David's a public figure. Nobody had heard of David. Why? Because he'd been in private, and in private, he killed the lion. In private, he killed the bear. Nobody knew about it. It wasn't on Sports Center. Nobody Googled it. Nobody tweeted it. It just happened in private. Here's what happens. God does his work in his men in private. He tests his men in private, and there's nobody around, and there's no publicity, and there's no glory to the individual. But what happens, that individual in crisis, in his private life, learns, I can trust God. And then God will put them in situations, perhaps it might be a little more public, but see, they've been tested. And they will do things that other people won't take on because they've seen the faithfulness of God in private. Therefore, if it's a little bit more of a public setting, which they haven't sought, David didn't seek this, God promoted him. Psalm 75, not from the east, not from the west, not from the desert comes promotion. Promotion comes from the Lord. So he's suddenly promoted. Saul gets insanely jealous. And so now David's on the run, and he's going to be on the run, although David is now because the Spirit of God has left Saul, and because of his unbelief, and because of his disobedience, and because he offered sacrifices, and he's not a priest. And after time after time of disobedience, the Spirit of God is withdrawn, uh, David is going to be the new king, and now, uh, what's his name, Saul, is going to spend the next 10 years hunting David down and trying to destroy him. So this is probably, the setting is probably at En Gedi, which you can visit today if you go to Israel. It's just um, west of the Dead Sea. The Judean hills start going up, and there's an oasis. There's a river that flows down, and it's a very uh, narrow canyon, and as you hike up, and the river is flowing through the rocks, and you come to some waterfalls. As you're walking, and these steep walls, you see caves everywhere. And what was happening is that David was hiding in the caves, and Saul had hundreds, if not thousands, of men looking for him, and David's in the cave, and uh, they're trying to destroy him. That's the setting of the psalm. And he says in verse 1, Be gracious to me, O God, be gracious to me. This can be rendered merciful. Be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to, to me, for my soul takes refuge in you. There will be times in your life when, when all you can do is cry for mercy. You, you're, you're, you know what you're crying for when you cry for mercy? You're crying for extreme kindness. Extreme kindness. I, I, need, I, I need super turbocharged kindness from you. I need mercy 
because all, all escape routes have been shut down. I have no options. I, I'm out of my network. I'm out, uh, it, it's over. At some point in your life, you will be there. This is where David was. Be gracious, be merciful to me, O God. My soul takes refuge in you. And in the shadow of your wings, I will take refuge until destruction passes by. Now watch this. This book, Mystery of Providence, is based on verse 2. And the first line of verse 3. David says, surrounded, death is everywhere. He says, I will cry to God most high. To God who accomplishes all things for me, he will send from heaven and save me. Um, he says, I will cry to God most high. Now, remember I said providence is the flip side of God's sovereignty. Uh, what is the sovereignty of God? If you look at uh, Psalm 103, it says his throne is in the heavens and his sovereignty rules over all. Sovereignty is absolute control. Absolute. Absolute control. Uh, what was that first question? You see, sovereignty and providence just go hand in hand. And, and, and guys, i got to tell you something. There, there, is, there is a peace that comes when you start honing in on the sovereignty and providence of God that comes from nowhere else. There is a peace. There is a calmness. There is a confidence. I got a call yesterday. It wasn't good news. I mean, it wasn't cataclysmic, but it was a little, you know, I went, eh, gosh. And I'm getting in the pool to do my swimming. And I'm about 12 meters in. And I'm thinking, gosh. And, uh, and I thought, wait a minute. It's all right. It's okay. You know, Lord, you're sovereign. You got a plan. Nothing's changed. Nothing has changed here. Nothing. Nothing has changed. And then I, I'm, I'm still swimming, and this is rolling through my head that, you know, you said count it joy when you encounter various trials. This isn't a big trial, it's a little trial, but I don't like it. But you know what? I'm going to be, uh, I'm going to count this as joy. I'm going to consider this because you've got something going on here that I can't see immediately. But I've, how many times have I seen you work? So, Lord, help me to enjoy this swim and help me to enjoy the rest of my day and not get all screwed up over this. It's not that big of a deal. See, that's how this stuff is supposed to work. Now, I'm going to tell you something. Fifteen years ago, that would have thrown me all day. I would have been messed up. And again, it wasn't huge. It was just something, you know, I didn't want to hear See, if you believe God is sovereign, you can handle things that you never thought you could handle. Because it's not on you, it's not all about you. You're the creature, he's the creator, and it's up to him to sustain you and provide and make a way for you because you only have limited capabilities. 
And by the way, whatever you have, well, I've run out. I had this resource and this resource. I ran out. Well, where'd you get it in the first place? 1 Corinthians 4, 7. What have you received? What do you have that you have not received? Anything you've got comes from his hand. Right? Anything. Your ability to read, your ability to think, your, your ability to uh, ponder a truth and apply it to your life. Whatever you've got, your ability to breathe, your, your ability for your brain to say, I want to step, and you don't even think about it, and it's just, that's amazing, and it's a gift, and it's been given to you. You see? And you say, but I'm out of what I normally have. Well, he's the provider. He not only is sovereign, he's not only the creator, he not only has all power, but he has all wisdom, and he sustains. He upholds all things. The idea is he continuously upholds all things by the word of his power. He keeps you going. He preserves you. He sustains you. This is what he does. I will cry to God most high. And now see, here's what happens. We look around and we see forces. We, we, we look at our country and we see stuff going on that we don't like. And we, we, a, a lot of us are concerned. A lot of us are worried. We think about, oh my gosh, what's going to happen to my kids? What are they going to face? If it's changing this rapidly now, what about my kids? What about my grandkids? And, 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 and it's changing. There's no doubt about it. Um, and we've got these people in these places. And we got these agencies, and nobody even elected them. And these guys are making decisions, and nobody, they're accountable to no, and all this. And you watch this stuff, and you watch the news, and your blood pressure starts shooting up. And you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, you do. Because some of you are squirting blood out of your eyeballs right now. Because you're just upset. And it's upsetting, you see? And, and the thought is, we got people in positions of power who are misusing power. Well, that's nothing new. But it seems like it's unchecked, and it seems like there's no accountability, and, we, and all this. And, and man, this is determining my life and the future of my life and my kids and my grandkids. And, and these people in high places. Okay, now here's where you got to think biblically. Yeah, they're in high places. He's most high. He's most high. They're high. Oh, by the way, how do they get in those high places? He put them there. He put them there. Um, let's go to Daniel. Daniel, so much of Daniel is the sovereignty. The book of Daniel is about the sovereignty of God. Uh, the last half of Daniel is about prophecy, what's going to happen in the future. By the way, you know what? If there's no providence of God, you've got no prophecy. If God isn't sovereign, you've got no fulfilled prophecy. You might, there are, a lot of, there are all kinds of groups that got prophecy. But you've got no fulfilled prophecy without sovereignty in the providence of God. You understand what I'm saying? There's all kinds of fulfilled prophecy when Jesus came the first time. We got prophecy that's happening as we live through our lives. We're watching things being set up. I was reading Ezekiel 37, 38, 39 this week, and you know, you got Gog, Magog, I mean, that's Russia, and then you got this alliance with certain nations, and one of them is Persia, which is now Iran. That's never happened before in history, and it's happening now. And just prior, God said, I'm going to bring you back to the land, 
and they've been spattered all over. I'm going to bring you back and give you a land and make you a nation. Oh, that happened in 48. That doesn't happen without sovereignty and providence. That's the second half of Daniel. But in the first half of Daniel, when you get to Daniel 2, and we've read this. I'm going to read Daniel 2, and then I'm going to read Daniel 4. And here's why I'm doing this. Because you guys are leaders. You have leadership responsibility. You have families. You got jobs. You're trying to pay your bills, get your kids through school. You know, uh, I'm trying to, you know, save for my retirement, or I lost my retirement, or I don't have enough retirement, or, man, I might die before my, mo my money will run out, or I don't have any money for retirement, and all that. And <laughs> hey, man, hold on. Chill out. Eat a cheeseburger. Read your Bible, okay? Oh, I should have done a better job. I should have done this. I should have. Yeah, yeah, well, you, yeah, you should have, but you didn't. But you got a Savior named Jesus, and he just keeps on saving. Dumb guys. We're going to rename this the Dumb Guy Bible Study. And that means everybody ought to come, right? Because we're not nearly as smart as we think we are. Okay. So you get to Daniel 2. And in Daniel 2, what happens is that Daniel has lost his nation. He's lost his freedom, lost his land, free enterprise system. It's all gone. He's living in a foreign land he didn't want to go to. In other words, the worst has happened. The worst possible thing he could imagine has occurred, and he's there. He's uh, part of the, the, you know, he's part of the, the royal family from Judah, and now the king of Babylon has got these guys. These, he's young with his buddies, and they're kind of reorienting them and taking them to the schools and, you know, going to get them into the system. Anyway, and the king, this Babylonian king, has this dream, and he says to his guys, his advisors, Listen, I had this dream. Normally, I tell you the dream, and then you interpret it. But I, listen, I pay you too much. You got too many perks to begin with. So here's the deal. This time, you tell me what I dreamt. And they freak out. Oh, and there's not a man on the earth who can do this, O king. That's uh, 210 of Daniel. Uh, moreover, the thing which the king demands, 11, is difficult. There is no one else who could declare it to the king except gods whose dwelling place is not with mortal flesh. Oh, yes, it is. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it is. So what happens is Daniel and his buddies pray, and God reveals the dream of the king. And, and, if, and if the king doesn't get it, he's going to kill everybody. So, verse 19, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a night vision. Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel said, let the name of God be blessed forever and ever, for wisdom and power belong to him. So here, I've asked this before in here. How much wisdom does God have? He has all wisdom. How much power does God have? He has all power. Sometimes there's a crisis. Someone has the wisdom to fix the crisis, but they don't have the power to apply the wisdom. That's never been true of God. Okay? Don't ever forget the wisdom and power of God. Because if you're in a cave and you think you're done, His wisdom and His power can deliver. Okay. Now, I can't spend too much time on this. Uh, you say, man, but Steve, listen, I have trouble sleeping because things are changing so fast in this country. Yes, they are. Look at the next line. 
it is he who changes the times and the epics. If it's changing, who's changing it? He's changing it. He's behind it. It's the invisible hand. You say, yeah, but I voted. Good. We, we're blessed we get to vote. It's a great country. You can vote early. You can vote often. You can vote in this country if you're dead. So I vote. I'm going to vote. You vote. Everybody vote. You know who's getting in? Look at the next line. He removes kings and establishes kings. Huh. Now go over to Daniel. Uh, let's go to Daniel 4. So this guy Nebuchadnezzar, he, he's, the big, he's the big man. He's the most powerful man on the face of the earth. Babylon... Uh, uh, the Chaldeans, uh, the, these guys are the big boys on the block. They, they are the latest, greatest nation that everybody's intimidated by. Um, the king um, has a dream in Daniel 4, and he starts talking about it in 4.4 and all, okay. And then he tells the dream to Daniel. Okay, and he wants, in 18, he says, Belteshazzar, which is what they, the name they gave to Daniel. Tell me what this means. Because no one in my kingdom can do it. But uh, you are able, for a spirit of the holy gods is in you. Then Daniel, I'm in 19 of Daniel 4. Daniel, whose name is Belteshazzar, was appalled for a while as his thoughts alarmed him. Uh, the king responded and said, Belteshazzar, do not let the dream or its interpretation alarm you. Belteshazzar, Daniel, replied, My Lord, if only the dream applied to those who hate you and its interpretation to your adversaries. The problem is this, this applies to you. And this big tree you saw that got cut down, you're the tree. You're about to go down. I, I'm paraphrasing the, the following verses. Uh, verse uh, 24, This is the interpretation, O king, and this is the decree of the Most High, which has come upon my Lord the king. Watch this that you be driven away from mankind and your dwelling place be with beasts of the field. And you be given grass to eat like cattle and be drenched with the dew of heaven and seven periods of time, seven years, will pass over you until you recognize, until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. That's sovereignty. 27, therefore, O king, may my advice be pleasing to you. Break away now from your sins by doing righteousness and from your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor in case there may be a prolonging of your prosperity. In other words, repent. You submit to this God. You've seen him at work. Submit to him. Bow to him. Verse 28, all this happened to, the, to Nebuchadnezzar the king. 29, 12 months later, he was, am I boring you guys? All right, watch this. 12 months later, Nebuchadnezzar is walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. The king reflected and said, is this not, he's smoking a stogie, he's walking around, checking things out, you know. Is this not Babylon the Great, which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power and the glory of my majesty? While the word was in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared sovereignty has been removed from you. And you will be driven away from mankind, and your dwelling place will be with the beasts of the field. You will be given grass to eat like cattle, and seven periods, seven years of time will pass over you 
until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whoever he wishes. Immediately, the word concerning Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from mankind, began eating grass like cattle, and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair had grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. He's out there grazing with the Angus. <laughs> the greatest man on the face of the earth. 34, but at the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes towards heaven, and my reason returned to me. Why? Why did his reason return? It had been given to him. It had been taken away, and now it's given to him by a sovereign God, and he had nothing to do with any of it. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. Kind of a change in personality happening now. Kind of a change of perspective. Watch this. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. He does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth, and no one can ward off his hand. Or say to him, what have you done? At that time, my reason returned to me, and my majesty and splendor were restored to me for the glory of my kingdom, and my counselors and my nobles began seeking me out. So I was reestablished in my sovereignty, and surpassing greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and honor the King of heaven, for all his works are true, and his ways just. What God did to him was just. By his own admission, watch this, and he is able to humble those who walk in pride. It was the greatest thing that ever happened to him. Now, how could this have happened? David says, when he's in the cave, and you say, well, okay, see, this is all interesting, but you, I'm about to lose my house. I'm about to, you know, I don't know if I'm going to live through the next three months. I don't, okay, listen to this. I will cry, and that literally is a cry. It's not a calm prayer, Psalm 57, 2. It's not a, it, it, it's desperation. I will cry to God. God what? I will cry, cry to God most high. When you pray, this is your God. He has all wisdom. He has all power. This is our God. So if you're in a cave, you're trapped, there's no way out. You know what? He's the God who makes a way where there's no way. You don't see any way of escape, but he provides a way of escape out of the temptation. This is what he does. And he gets glory, and he gets honor, and he humbles proud and arrogant and foolish men like us and brings us to Christ. We don't even want to come. We come kicking and screaming into the kingdom. He gives us a new mind. He gives us a new heart. He regenerates us. He opens our blind eyes. Our blind eyes. He brings us to Jesus. He, and now he's given us life, and now he's going to sustain us. He's going to preserve us, and he's going to use us. This is wild stuff. So, but here's my point tonight. As a leader, whatever it is you're facing, sometimes we feel like failures. And sometimes we are failures. And we've messed up, and we've done this, and we've lost this, and oh, I should have done that, and I didn't do that. And okay, okay, but you've got a Savior who is God most high. And whatever pit you have dug for yourself, or whatever someone else has done to you, He is able to deliver. Listen to the Psalm 57.2. I will cry to God most high, to God who accomplishes all things for me. He will sin from heaven and save me. That's amazing. 
When you call to him, call on me in the day of trouble. I will rescue you and you will honor me. Psalm 50, it is Psalm 50. Uh, Spurgeon called that the Robinson Crusoe song. Because when Robinson Crusoe, that's a novel, but it's a Christian novel. He ran away from his father, who was a God-fearing man, would not listen to his father's advice, would not listen to the gospel. He winds up on a desert island. But he remembered from his catechism a verse he'd been taught, Psalm 50. And on that beach, when everything was gone and his life was over and there was no escape, he quoted, call on me in the day of trouble. And I will rescue you and you will honor me. Why? Because he's God most high. Is this great stuff or what? And isn't that true? Isn't that true when we study this stuff? The stress level drops 90%. Right? My daughter Rachel has this theory, and her theory is the greatest of all emotions is relief. I love that. And every time I say the sovereignty of God, I'm relieved. Aren't you? This stuff, I'm just relieved. You know what? I bet you I'm going to make it. And you are going to make it. Because he's the one who preserves and sustains you, and you can't die until your work is done. You say, well, how do you know that? The next line in the verse. I will cry to God most high, to God who accomplishes all things for me. When you read Flavel, whatever I did with Flavel, whatever I did with this book, in here he shows that that can be rendered. Watch this. I will cry to God most high, to God who accomplishes. One of the old scholars translated it this way. I will cry to God most high, to God who is the transactor of all my affairs. Man, I love that. He's my banker. He's my father. He's my physician. He's my counselor. He's my God. He's my savior. He's my friend. He's my elder brother. He's my comfort. He's everything. He's everything. He is the transactor of all my affairs. I'm in a cave, can't get out. I'm overwhelmed. I can't see. Go to the other cave psalm. Go to Psalm 142 real quick. Psalm 142, Maskell of David. What does that mean? Uh, contemplative or skillful psalm. When he, once again, when he was in the cave. He was in a lot of caves for 10 years, running for, from Saul. Okay? I cry aloud with my voice to the Lord. Once again, there it is. I cry aloud. Why? He's desperate. Dear God, help me. I don't know how I'm going to get out of this. And everybody here, you know what the deal is? Everybody here looks calm and cool and together. And very few of us are. Some of us are, because it's a time of relative peace and prosperity. Thank the Lord for it. Enjoy it. Other guys are in great turbulence. They don't look like it. The men inside, they're just, they're just, they're dying. They're deeply troubled. Okay, that's where David was. I cry to God most, I cry aloud with my voice to the Lord. I make supplication with my voice to the Lord. I pour out my complaint before him. I declare my trouble before him. 
Go ahead and let him. I mean, he knows. Tell him. It's good for you. Get it off your chest. Watch this. When my spirit was overwhelmed within me, you knew my path. I don't have a clue how I'm getting out of this cave. But you know. You know. And you have all wisdom. Because you have all wisdom and you have all power. What does that mean? You'll get me out of the cave at the right time. At the right time. See, I think this, I, I want out now. But you may not get out now. Because in his wisdom, he may have you there a little bit longer. I don't know. Now, he can get you out right now. And if that's the best time, just be, you say, oh, yeah, that's where, oh, yeah, that was that verse, no good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. It would be good for me to get out of this cave. Okay. Well, if it's good for you to get out of the cave, you'll be out of the cave. Sometimes what God does is God withholds a good thing because right now it's not the best for you. He knows when it's best. He knows what he's doing. Okay. When my spirit was overwhelmed within me, you knew my path, and he knows your path, and he knows mine. Okay, so... A leader in providence. What, is this, what does this do? Uh, you, you know what? Um, providence is everywhere in the scriptures. And a lot of times we blow right by it and we don't even see it. I, I got six minutes. Uh, I just want, I want us to think for a minute about the book of Esther. And I want us to think about Mordecai. Uh, you know what's interesting about the book of Esther? God, God is not mentioned once in the book of Esther. Not once, but he's everywhere. The invisible hand of providence is everywhere in the book of Esther. So you got this guy named Mordecai. And you know, guy just like us. The guy, you know, he's trying to make it, he's trying to get through life, trying to do his thing. Uh, it, 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 he wasn't married. Now, had he been married and his wife died or something? We don't know, it doesn't tell us. Or was... <clears throat> excuse me, was he a guy who had never been married? I don't know. But we know this, if you turn over to Esther, we know that um, he was raising a young girl because his relatives um, died, the mother and father, and their child, Esther, and she had nowhere to go, so here's this single guy. And, and, and you know, maybe he was lonely, maybe he was disappointed with where he was in life, and had some dreams that hadn't been fulfilled? I don't know. I don't know. But there's this little girl, and you know what? She needs a home, and she needs... So what does he do? The guy steps up. He just steps up. He's a servant. It's the right thing to do. He loves the Lord. So he steps up, takes this little girl, and he's going to raise a little... What does he know about raising a little girl? Probably what you would know about raising a little girl by yourself. Not a whole lot. But he's willing. He said, okay, Lord, here we go. And he's going, to raise this, he's going to raise this little girl. And they're living in a foreign land because you remember when Daniel was taken into captivity and they go in for 70 years and then at the end of 70 years, Ezra and Nehemiah are starting to go back and rebuild Jerusalem. Well, Babylon, remember they went into Babylon? But the king of Persia comes in and knocks off the Babylonian guy and that's what this is about in Esther. And... Mordecai is still in Persia uh, under this king, uh, Hashuerus, 
and um, they're living in this citadel in Susa, and the queen gives them a hard time. That's chapter one. He says, I'm going to get a new queen. Can't have this. Can't put up with this. And they start looking around, and he's looking for a new queen, and Esther was in the, she was Miss Tennessee or something, or Miss Gaza Strip. I don't know what she was. And then she got to the semifinals, and, and she gets elected. She's it. He says, she's the one. Verse 10. Um, uh, go back to, go, go to 2.7. Actually, go to 2.5. Let's pick this up. Now, there was a, now, there was at the citadel in Susa a Jew whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjamite, who had t- been taken into exile from Jerusalem with the captives, who had been exiled with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had exiled. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, his uncle's daughter, for she had no father or mother. Now, the young lady was beautiful, former face, and when her father and mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. Um, anyway, then she finds favor with the king. Verse 10, Esther did not make known her people or her kindred, for Mordecai instructed her that she would not make them known. Every day Mordecai walked back and forth in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and how she fared. He was connected. He was intentional. Okay? Verse 17, the king loved Esther more than all the other women, set the royal crown on her head, made her queen instead of Vashti. 20, Esther had not yet made known her kindred or her people, even as Mordecai had commanded her, for Esther did what Mordecai told her as she had done when under his care. She had learned obedience under this man. Uh, and then there was, he's just living his life and, you know, watching out over Esther. Can't believe it. She, she's the queen. Can't believe it. But she's there. He has to be stunned. Uh, and then he's just going about his business and he hears this plot. These two guys are going to kill the king. So what does he do? He reports it. Because in Jeremiah 29, it said to the people that were going into captivity to pray for the welfare of the city and be good citizens. So he was a good citizen and said, hey, someone's going to knock off the king. So they heard about it and they stopped the assassination attempt. That's at the end of chapter 2. And then there's this bureaucrat named Haman. He's the ultimate federal bureaucrat. And he loves himself and he loves his position and his authority and he loves to tell other people what to do and control other people. And he loves to disobey the law, but write laws and make other people do what he says. Um, And he loved to walk around, verse 2 of 3, he would love to walk around and they'd all pay homage to Haman and the king had commanded concerning him, but Mordecai neither bowed nor down nor paid homage. Mordecai wouldn't do it. And that just ticked this guy off. And he hated Mordecai and he found out Mordecai was a Jew. So he has this plot and what he's going to do, he's going to kill all the Jews in the whole in, the, in all the provinces. And he gets the king to sign off on it because the king signed the bill before he read the bill. That's in chap- It's in the text. It's in the text. That's chapter 3. Just read it. The king approves it. And so now all the Jews are going to be destroyed because he doesn't like, because this one jerk doesn't like Mordecai not bowing down to him. Okay? Chapter 4, Mordecai learned all that has been... By the way, God's not never been mentioned here. Mordecai learned all that had been done. He tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and he's weeping and wailing. They tell Esther what's going on. Um, and he basically says, listen, uh, you're, you're going to have to step in here. Verse 13, 
Mordecai told them to reply, oh, she said, I've not been summoned. That's in verse 11. And if you go into the king's presence and you're not summoned, it could cost you your life. She said, I haven't been summoned. He writes to her, or gives a message, 13. And Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, do not imagine that you and the king's palace can escape any more than all the Jews. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place, and you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not attained royalty for such a time as this. <laughs> Is that great or what? He can see it. You think you're in there by accident? You think you're in there just for your own well-being and comfort and affluence? So you can jacuzzi all day and play tennis? You think that's why you're in there? Uh-uh. Uh-uh. There is a sovereign God who's not in this book that's running the show, and the invisible hand is at work. That's why you're there, Esther. She takes the risk. She goes in to see the king. Um, Anyway, and then you read on in 5, and Haman gets this idea. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to build a gallows, and I'm going to hang Mordecai. So he has the royal gallow makers come in, and they're going to, they got this thing, and they're going to hang, he's going to hang Mordecai. Okay, chapter 6. Watch this. So here's this plot. And these are Jews. They have no power. They have no influence. I mean, they are a hated people. Okay, they, they don't have a good old boy network. They got nothing. They're in a cave of circumstances. Chapter 6. During that night, the king could not sleep. My question is, why? In him we live and move and breathe and exist. Well, you know why he couldn't sleep. God took sleep from him. Okay? During the night, the, the king couldn't sleep. So he gave an order to bring the book of rec records. The cable was out. I mean, he had nothing to do, so bring the books, the chronicles. And they read them before the king. And it was found written, as he's reading through the books, he's got nothing else to do, he's just reading the books. And it was found written what Mordecai had reported concerning the assassins, that they were going to kill him. Uh, verse 3, the king said, well, honor or dignity has been bestowed on Mordecai. And the king's servant said, well, nothing's been done for him. And the king said, well, who's in the court? Now, Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace in order to speak to the king about hanging Mordecai on the gallows which he had prepared for him. He has a line in here, and the line is, learn to adore providence. You adore it. You adore the timing of God. You adore, you adore the creativity of God. One of these Puritan guys said, God often helps his people when all hope is gone. Is that not classic? What do we do for Mordecai? Who's in the court? Haman's walking in. Hey, I want to hang this guy. And watch this. Watch this. It gets better. It gets better. King's servant said, hey, Haman's standing in the court. King said, let him come in. Haman came in and the king said to him, what is to be done for the man whom the king desires to honor? Haman said to himself, whom would the king desire to honor more than me? <laughs> Haman said to the king, ah, for the man whom the king desires to honor, let them bring a royal robe which the king has worn, and let the horse on which the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown has been placed, and let the robe and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most 
noble princes, and let them array the man whom the king desires to honor, and lead him on horseback through the city square, and proclaim before him, Thus it shall be done to the man whom the king desires to honor. The king said to Haman, Take quickly the robes and the horse, if you have said, and do so for Mordecai the Jew. Who is sitting at the king's gate? Do not fall short in anything of all that you have said. Uh, amen is right. Mordecai was in a cave. I will cry to God most time. To God who accomplishes all things for me because he controls everything and everyone and he is infinitely creative in his redemption and deliverance eye has not seen ear has not heard what God has prepared for those who love him 11 so Haman took the orb and the horse arrayed Mordecai led him on horseback through the city square and proclaimed before him Thus it shall be done to the man whom the king desires to honor. Mordecai returned to the king's gate. Haman hurried home, mourning with his head covered. Haman recounted to Zeresh, his wife, and all his friends, everything that had happened to him. And his wise men and Zeresh, his wife, said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of Jewish origin, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. While they were still talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived, brought Haman to the banquet, which Esther had prepared, and there his plot will be uncovered. And he will go to the gallows. And the people of God were delivered. That's the sovereignty, and that's the providence of God. And as a leader, and as a guy walking through a culture that's becoming increasingly anti-Christian, an anti-Bible, and you're trying to make a living, and you're stand, trying to stand for truth and give wisdom and all this, you know what? Don't forget the sovereignty and the providence. It'll keep you going. <laughs> Let's pray. Thank you, Father. We, uh, we adore you, and we adore your providence. I think of those great tapestries and those uh, mansions you see in England that you can go through. Now, often I, I, in, in Churchill's ancestral home, Marlborough Castle, some of those tapestries are 20, 30 feet high, another 20 feet wide. Great battles are are woven, those are incredible. Then you can go into the shops and you can see the smaller tapestries. And they have also been the result of weavers and their great skill. The thing about those tapestries, if you turn them over, they're just a mangled web of threads. And it looks like utter chaos. And oftentimes, we look at where we are in life, and we don't see a thread of escape. We don't see a thread of hope. 
we just see mangled threads. We, th we see things that confuse us and make no sense. It's like the back of a tapestry and, and threads are just hanging, multicolored everywhere. There's no rhyme or reason. But you flip that thing over and it's beautiful. Now that's what you did in the book of Esther. We trust you with our lives. With our lives. With our families. We trust you. We might be overwhelmed. That's because we're only seeing the wrong side of the tapestry. But when we're overwhelmed, you know our path. It's a beautiful path. And you'll receive glory and honor forever. We who are recipients of your grace and mercy honor your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.